0: Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the urban jungle of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host once again on location at George Washington's Mount Vernon, author and award-winning historian, John Fia.
1: Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode five of the way of improvement leads home podcast we are glad you have joined us Uh, the voice you just heard at the top of the program was drew durley Hermeling, my partner in crime in this effort by day drew is a phd student in early american history at lehigh university and by night i guess you could say by night he produces this podcast so needless to say He is a very busy man. So, Drew, we haven't had a Nilsa update uh, in a few episodes. For those of you who are are new to the podcast, Drew is a new father. So how are things going uh, with fatherhood and with uh, Nilsa? What is she up to?
0: Yeah, well, if I can make a small correction, I think I am by day and night a father and during nap time a PhD student and producer of the show. But uh, things are going great. She's, um, She's doing quite well she uh you know all those little benchmarks rolling over um now you know it's it sometimes it's a little bit funny to think about the how excited we get over these little things, but now we're anxiously waiting to see her pass a toy from one hand to the other, because apparently that's the next uh, the next benchmark in in childhood development. But uh, we're having a great time. Uh, the weather's gotten a lot nicer, so we're exploring our lovely city of Harrisburg. Those of you who've not been here, it's uh, situated along the Susquehanna River, it has some gorgeous vistas and some wonderful downtown markets and things like that. So it's been fun to be able to get outside and and enjoy. The new the uh the early spring weather, and and Nilsa, who I think it's fair to say Nilsa is the third member
1: of our uh, of our team here. Absolutely, yeah, she's our intern. She's our intern. Good. Uh, she actually made a cameo appearance on the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog uh, the other day.
0: Yeah, I mean we uh, we often do a lot of the editing together. Uh, she gives me sage advice uh, as I'm going through changing the levels on the audio, and by sage advice, she mainly just lies there and plays with her toys. But uh, the nice thing about modern technology is I can be with her and also do work at the same time.
1: Now, if I'm doing my math correctly, Drew, we are about halfway through our first season here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Is that
0: correct? Absolutely. This is episode five of a 10-episode season, and we've had some fabulous guests thus far, but I think the future holds uh, some very fascinating conversations as well.
1: Yeah, we definitely have some good guests lined up in the future, so stay tuned. I think you'll enjoy the kind of people that we'll be talking with in the second half of our spring 2016 uh, season. And, of course, this is where you come in. Uh, Not you, Drew, but our listeners. (laughs) We really need your support. Uh, head over to iTunes or thewayofimprovement.com to download past episodes or to subscribe. I also want to strongly encourage you to consider writing a review at iTunes. Reviews are so important to helping a podcast like ours uh, build an audience. So, Drew, what else have you been up to this past week?
0: Well, as I'm sure you don't know, as you are on sabbatical, Messiah College is on spring break this week, so I've had a... uh I've been able to take a break away from teaching, um, but I guess I've just filled that space with uh, watching the primary election returns a little bit too closely and losing sleep over it. But uh, it's been fascinating, and I think uh, it definitely confirms what Yoni predicted so aptly during our episode three, that we can't actually make any accurate predictions.
1: Yeah, um, uh, so I guess you were up late uh, the other night watching those Michigan returns. Yeah, that
0: was... That was crazy, and it's been very interesting watching the GOP try to deal with its, you know, identity crisis. I guess you could say right now, and but uh, it's been fascinating, and it, and I think it's it, it is an important time. I think people often overuse that phrase when talking about election season. I distinctly remember. 2004 being very important, 2008 being very important, 2012 being very important. But After
1: uh, all, Drew, this is the most important election in American history. Absolutely. You always get that. Uh, Marco Rubio seems big on that line, uh, you know, how, how, how important this election is. Uh, of course, we historians, we know better, right?
0: We do know better, but I do also think having observed through a historical lens the big shifts in... Um, Party affiliation, you know, I'm thinking of the the New Deal or Jackson's election. I do think uh, I can safely say that we might be witnessing. I can safely say that we might be witnessing a big shift in party affiliation.
1: No, I think you're right. I think you're right. There were some some historians uh, on the night of the debate, sort of dis- discussing on Twitter, you know, about what you know, what this is a, uh, you know, what are some precedents for this, you know, talking about maybe the Whig move into the Republican Party or the, you know, the Democratic Party being formed out of the Jeffersonian Republicans and so forth. A lot of interesting things to think about uh, during this election cycle. And, you know, head over to the blog. We're trying to cover the election the best that we can, offer some historical perspective to it. And I think I think uh, the podcast, you mentioned Yoni Applebaum in episode three, the, the Washington Bureau Chief of The Atlantic, who we interviewed, talking about politics from a historical perspective. Uh, The culture wars with Dan Williams in Episode 2 is still very, very relevant as well uh, as we think about uh, these elections. And I think even our interviews with Jim Grossman and Sam Weinberg in Episodes 1 and Episodes 4 uh episode 4 respectively uh thinking about how if we right if we ever need some good historical thinking and critical thinking uh now is the time absolutely so how are things in mount vernon well, Drew, sadly, my stint as a visiting scholar here is wrapping up. Uh, it has been a phenomenal experience to live and work here for the past month. I got—I an, have another week as we're recording this. I have one more week left. Uh, I've made some new friends here. I've really jump-started a writing project that I have been dragging my feet on for the last year. Uh, I just want to thank right now, I don't know if they'll be listening, but I want to thank all of the Mount uh, Vernon staff for making this such a rewarding and productive experience for me. I'm thinking especially of people like Doug Bradburn, Stephen McLeod, Allison Wickens, Mark Santangelo, Mary Youngma, uh, and Sarah Myers. I have also overlapped with four other visiting scholars here who have been great conversation partners over the course of the last month. And I have really learned a lot from our our informal conversations in the office and in the library and over at the Mount Vernon Inn. Uh, So let me give a big shout out uh, to Philip Levy, Lindsay Shervinsky, aaron holmes and chris gergens uh, you will be uh, soon seeing some great new work from them on george washington and on the founding era so yeah it's 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 just been a wonderful experience so far drew and i'm really gonna uh i'm looking forward to getting home it's bittersweet i'm looking forward to getting back home into my daily rhythms and being uh spending more time with my family but i'm also gonna miss it here well it's
0: also a big week for you on the publishing front
1: Yes. Uh, While I've been here at Mount Vernon, uh, my book, uh, The Bible Cause, A History of the American Bible Society, was released uh, by Oxford University Press. came out last week. Uh, Some of you who read the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog uh, know about that. Uh, After Mount Vernon, uh, I will be moving full speed ahead with the promotional efforts for the book. So we'll be doing a lot of talks and lectures, some radio, print media, and of course will be out there in the blogosphere and in other online venues. So I think the book turned out very well. Um, some of you know I had about a year to write it, and I was worried about that. But um, I think if you're interested in the Bible in America, uh, or American religious history, or even the American Bible Society in and of itself, or American reform movements, uh, you might find the book uh, worth reading. So uh, consider go out and going out and getting a copy. Uh, I should also add that Oxford University Press is offering listeners to the podcast and readers of the blog, uh, thewayofimprovement.com, a 30% discount uh, on the book. So head over to thewayofimprovement.com and find that promotional code and you can buy it for 30% off. Um, Really interesting, too, Drew, I was also able to connect my work on the American Bible Society with my stay here at Mount Vernon. Uh, Sarah Myers, who is one of the librarians here and is very, very good at her job, uh, reminded me that Bushrod Washington, who was George Washington's nephew, and he's also the guy who inherited Mount Vernon, uh, was one of the early board members of the American Bible Society, and I actually mentioned him in the book. I had completely forgotten about that. So needless to say, I have been getting uh, a lot of mileage on the Bushrod Washington mention uh, as I talk to people here at the library and maybe convinced them to try to buy the book for the Mount Vernon
0: Library. <laughs> Well, whether it be a 200-year-old organization founded to distribute cheap Bibles or the estate of the so-called founder of our country, the past is always with us, and we are always encountering it in different ways. This episode, we want to talk about encountering the past. That's right, Drew. And in order to help us do that, we will be
1: talking to Tim Grove the chief of museum learning at the National Air and
0: Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think this is a very fascinating interview from someone who's led a very fascinating life. This is a man who has been tireless in working towards making history more accessible to people of all ages. So I think this is a really timely interview for us as we continue to discuss the relevance of history. And in fact, that's a subject that Tim is going to touch on. But before we hear from Tim, what do you have for us today, John?
1: Thanks, Drew. I mean, one of the benefits of being a visiting scholar at Mount Vernon is getting 24-hour access to George Washington's estate. We've had some beautiful weather here this past week, so after a long day in the library, I decided to take a sunset walk on the grounds. The tourists and the staff were gone, and I had the whole estate to myself. I walked through the place where Washington tended his garden, peeked through the windows of the slave quarters talked to some of the farm animals, strolled along the wharf, and, of course, sat on Washington's back porch and stared out over the Potomac River. It was quiet. Perhaps too quiet. Until the Mount Vernon Ladies Association turned this place into a tourist attraction in the 1860s, it was a working farm populated by Washington family members, overseers, and mostly slaves. I imagine it would have been very busy, and perhaps, even at this time of night, quite loud. I'm guessing that when visitors come to Mount Vernon, they think that they are experiencing the place just as George Washington did in the late 18th century. And in some sense, they would be right. The mansion and the outbuildings are still in the same places. There is still an amazing view of the Potomac River. And one can certainly say that they walked where George Washington once walked. But as much as Mount Vernon has done its best to transport the visitor back in time, I needed to also remember that the ground I was walking on had changed significantly since Washington's day. Hundreds of interpreters, landscape developers, public historians, conservationists, preservationists, museum experts, and people who even know a thing or two about how to create a visitor's experience had had their way with Mount Vernon. I was thus conflicted as I walked around the estate on this balmy late winter night. I was inspired by George Washington and all that Mount Vernon represented in the history of my country. I became nostalgic for this world, a nostalgia that was enhanced by the special opportunity I had been given to be here in the first place. History and the past is inspiring. It is easy to develop an emotional connection to it. As I sat there and looked out over the Potomac, I think I gained a deeper understanding of this historical site. Not in terms of what actually happened here in the 18th century. That world is long gone. But in terms of the kind of American civil religion that makes places like Mount Vernon quote-unquote sacred in the minds of many Americans. Then I remembered another part of my identity. Yes, I am an American. I love my country and its past, but I am also a historian, and as a historian I know that nostalgia can be a dangerous thing. This fact hit me right between the eyes whenever I wandered past one of the material reminders of slavery that cover the landscape of Washington's estate. I kept walking. History often requires an act of the imagination. So I tried to lay aside whatever kind of religious experience I was having and tried to imagine what life in 18th century Mount Vernon was really like. What would the people on this plantation have been doing on a night like this? I began to recall all that I had read in graduate school and beyond about Washington, plantation life in early Virginia, agricultural history, slavery, and servanthood. But at the same time, I struggled. I struggled with mapping how things would have been based on the scholarship I had read. With a Mount Vernon landscape that had evolved in significant ways over the last 150 years. Indeed, we encounter the past in many different layers. In the end, Mount Vernon is part shrine. And part Living History Museum. The Mount Vernon that the Washingtons experienced is long gone, but we can get enough of a glimpse of it to stimulate our minds, and even engage our affections. I think it's time for another walk.
0: Thanks for those words, John. And now for our guest. Tim Grove is Chief of Museum Learning at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. He has over 20 years of public history experience and has worked in museum and history education at Colonial Williamsburg, the National Portrait Gallery, the National Museum of American History, and Missouri Historical Society. He is the author of several books, His 2008 book, The Museum Educator's Manual, received the 2008 Smithsonian Individual Achievement in Education Award. He has also written A Grizzly in the Mail and Other Adventures in American History, which was published in 2014 with the University of Nebraska Press, and First Flight Around the World, a history book for young readers that received an Excellence in Nonfiction Award from the American Library Association.
1: We are very excited today here in episode five of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to be talking with Tim Grove. Tim is is the chief of museum learning at the National Air and Space Museum and an author, the author of a fascinating book on his experiences with American history over the course of the last 20 years with a wonderful title, A Grizzly in the Mail and Other Adventures in American History. So we're going to learn a little bit more about that book, a little bit more about what Tim is up to and what he does uh, as well as a public historian and someone who is very, very passionate passionate uh, about the role of history uh, in society today. So, Tim, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, John. It's really fun to be here. You know, I've I've read your blog for a couple of years now, and it's really fun to um, be on the show.
0: Well, and I have to say, I'm very excited to have you here. As a child, um, you know, the Air and Space Museum was just one of my favorites, and I just have all these fond memories of going down to, to D.C. and having a mix of, of uh, history and Star Wars. So I, w- I always really appreciated going down to visit. So I do want to give you an opportunity first to tell us about your work at the Air and Space Museum.
2: Well, um, like you said, my title is Chief of Museum Learning, but my government title, if you will, is Supervisory Education Specialist. And so what that means is I'm a specialist as far as audiences, and so it's my job to really understand how all ages, how people interact in an informal environment, which is a museum setting, as opposed to a formal environment, which is classroom. And so it's really my job and my fellow educators' job to ensure that people that come to the museum, like Drew, have a good learning experience and leave having uh, really learned something about the topic in the collection. And um, so I am a specialist in that area, but a generalist, I would say, with content. So the curators, who are the content experts, they're very specialized. They are in charge of very specific collections, and their knowledge goes very deep in those topical areas. But I get to work with the, these worldwide experts all the time and it's really a thrill to sit at a table with them and hear them discussing history and add my two cents every now and then. But it's like being back in grad school and I love it. Um, I get to do that because I'm working on exhibition teams with them. We have a team of people that develop each exhibition and um, educators sit on those teams. So I'm often the educator on the team. And I um, whatever the topic, whether it's Apollo program or World War II or commercial aviation or you know lots of different topics. I'm usually, it's history exhibits that I work on. I don't work on the science exhibits as much. but um, So I represent the visitor and try to do what I can to help them um, find ways to make the exhibition not only physically accessible, but also intellectually accessible. Uh, for various ages, like I said. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's It means developing interactive experiences because some people want that hands-on learning for um, opportunity. And so quite often the educators take the lead with interactive experiences, whether they're computer interactives or mechanical interactives, but it's finding different ways to communicate the information.
1: Tim, you have been in the public history field now for over 20 years, which is a nice segue, I think, into your recent book, A Grizzly in the Mail and Other Adventures in American History. You have worked at Colonial Williamsburg. I hope I get all this right. Colonial Williamsburg, uh, the National Portrait Gallery, The um, Smithsonian Institute, uh, what is the National Museum of American History, of course, the Air and Space Museum. You've worked uh, with the Missouri Historical Society. And this book, uh, go out and get a copy of Grizzly in the Mail because it is part history, part memoir, part just uh, the story of a guy who is very enthusiastic enthusiastic about all dimensions of history. And it's, it's, it's a very contagious book. You know, when you read this book, you want to uh, get out there and find your nearest historical site and, and go <laughs> visit it. Um, so it's, it's great. But but a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, I read the time read the title now a couple times. So we're dying to know, Tim, what exactly was, or is or was the grizzly in the mail? Tell us that story. Tell us how the book got its title.
2: I have to give you a little, I have to set the story up. So I was in St. Louis, I was in St. Louis um, working on the National Lewis and Clark Bicentennial Exhibition um, about 10 years ago for the Bicentennial, obviously. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. It was a traveling exhibition. It was the national exhibition. It went to five venues. And it was an opportunity to really dig deep into that really powerful narrative story, which many of us know. Um, again, I was trying to find hands on elements. Um, and one of the, I should say, the interpretation of the story was really not about the natural world. It was more about the cultural landscape that they traveled through. And that's, that's, it, that's what attracted me to the exhibition because that interpretation hadn't really been done before. People think of, you know, their challenges with the Missouri River, the Great Falls the grizzlies, the, uh, all the animals that they encountered, and um, they don't think about the different tribal groups they encountered and all of those challenges of navigating that landscape. So that's what attracted me to work on the exhibition. So I should also say that I never know what a day will hold as far as my work. And so sometimes I'm doing crazy research for exhibition. One time I was working on a commercial aviation exhibit And I was calling lobster companies in Maine and Massachusetts trying to figure out how they ship live lobsters by plane. So, you know, I would never have expected I'd be doing that. So um, with the Grizzly, we were looking for first watches that people could touch. And I know I say it's about the cultural landscape, but we also tied it to Native American beliefs about the Grizzly. And. As you can imagine, um, grizzlies are federally protected in the lower 48, so it's really not easy to find grizzly fur. And so it was quite a a uh, effort of perseverance for our researchers um, part, on his part. And so he had finally contacted the state of Alaska, and I think one of their departments had had promised to send us this grizzly in the mail. And so we knew it was coming. We knew what the box was. So this big box came to the mail in the mail um, addressed to me. And so we all gathered around, very, very excited, tore open the box and immediately gagged at the stench emanating from the box. We had to step back and just (laughs) take a deep breath. And um, so we tore open this plastic bag and it was a whole grizzly skin, minus the head, but it was not tanned and it had the claws on and everything. And, you know, we had to wonder just how fresh it was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so as under other duties as assigned, I had to find a taxidermist, which I'd never been to a taxidermist. And so I had to find a taxidermist so I could take this grizzly bear skin to to get it tanned. And uh, so that's the grizzly in the mail. It actually was a grizzly skin that came.
1: That is an incredible story. The life, the life of a public historian and museum worker, right? Dealing yes. With, dealing yes. with smelly grizzly uh, skin. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. yes. Now, one of the the ch- my favorite chapter, and I know I've talked to you. I know it's one of your favorite chapters in the book, is the story about you riding a late nineteenth century high wheel bike. Do I have that right? A high wheel bike. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. That's tell us. Tell us about this one because it's a great story, right? Of of. Uh, theory about riding a high wheel bike versus reality of riding the reality of actually getting on the high wheel bike so tell us about that
2: right so um i at the national museum of american history i was managing the hands on history room which was a room for all ages and it featured 35 different hands on activities and it was an amazing place, it was an international model of museum education. We hosted people from around the world, from museums around the world, who really wanted to see what this was all about, because it was just at the time when traditional history museums were just starting to do hands-on, because obviously preservation and conservation of artifacts had been premier, and people were all nervous about uh, the hands, even having hands-on of reproductions alongside of real artifacts. So obviously, this room was filled with reproduction artifacts, and two of the main objects in the the window um, attracting people to come in were these two high wheel bicycles, big wheel in the front, small wheel in the back. Uh, and we made them stationary, and they were we took the risk out of the equation. But of course, in the 1880s, when they were at their heyday, uh, they were very risky to ride, and a lot of mostly young men, I should say, were riding them, and they, had, they didn't even have pneumatic tires. They had solid uh, rubber tires and a cup brake on the top, and so if you slammed on the brake or put any pressure on the brake, you'd fly overhead first, and that was called taking a header, <laughs> and uh, most people have seen these. It's in a parade or somewhere, and... So people loved this. They would run in the entrance and run to the bikes and hop on and ride. And, of course, the big question people had was how how did you get on one and how did you get off without breaking your neck, which I always wondered too. And so I would train the docents who worked in the room. And so we got that we answered that question countless times. So I knew, in theory, how it was done because I read the books and I read primary sources about how people did it. Mark Twain wrote a wonderful essay about taming the bicycle. I think that was the title of it. And he described his experience as riding a high wheeler and he he recommended getting one and he said, If you live because riding it was so dangerous and he actually <laughs> wrecked into a I think a cart carrying a bunch of cabbages and he had a scary experience on the high wheeler himself. But anyway, so but secretly I always wanted to try one because I thought the best way to tell someone how to do it is if I could have the real experience. So I imagined all these ways I could do that. And finally I had my opportunity. It took uh, many years for me to, to get the opportunity, but we had um, a group of, of reenactors who ride uh, high wheelers called the Potomac Wheelmen came and did a program about b- bicycles and I conned one of them into letting me try out his bike. And so there on the National Mall, I gave it an attempt, and of course, if you know the National Mall, it's gravel, so it's not the best place to try to get up on a high wheeler. So I gave up on that, and then we went to the terrace around American History, and I'm proud to say that I had no problem getting up on the bike. I went. I made three uh, circles around the American History Museum, hoping I would not run over any small child that ran in my way, um, <laughs> or a dog. Um, and then, of course, the challenge came getting off, and that is even harder than getting on. And I have to admit, as I say in the book, I cheated. Um, the guy who owned the bike, I think he saw the fear in my eyes, <laughs> and so he kind of ran alongside me, and, and I slowed down, and he steadied and grabbed the bike, and he steadied it, and I climbed off. So I didn't, I wasn't graceful getting off of it, but I, I was graceful getting on, but I could say from that point on that I, I could speak from experience that I rode a high wheeler. All the stories are not fun. I mean, some I do try to yeah. bring up some more serious historical topics, like bones history. Who can tell? Who has the right to tell whose story? Um, yeah. I talk about oral tradition versus documentary sources. So I do try to raise some good yeah. questions.
1: You spent over twenty years in a a museum work. Tell us about why museums are important in American life and. What should happen when one, you know, how help us with our museum experience. What should happen? Why are museums important? And what should happen to us when we visit one?
2: Museums are important because they're a connection to the past. And by preserving primary sources, you have that tangible and powerful connection to the past that you can't get other places. I mean, you can get that at historic sites, but... Museums, I think the best museums know how to tell good stories. They know how to ask questions. And the best ones also provide a forum for visitors to understand the president. Or, sorry, the president. I should say that again. Sometimes it's the president, too, though, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, I mean, I meant the president. They provide a forum for understanding the president. But if they're a historic site that has is a presidential home, then it's president. But I, I also think that they promote an empathy for people who lived in the past and hopefully help you get some insight into those people's decisions that they made, which um, oftentimes impacted us today. So a good museum will do all of those things. We all know people that don't like traditional history museums because they they don't like reading labels and they want to touch things. And I would like to say, and I, I think it's the case that history museums are moving very far away from that old model and are providing hands-on opportunities. They're recognizing that people learn in very different ways. They're using, making use of various uh, learning theories that are out there to really enrich the museum experience. So um, I I think the visit has changed for the much for the better, for sure.
1: Now, in addition to being a public historian, in addition to working, in addition to working at the Smithsonian, uh, writing books like *The Grizzly* and *The Mail* uh, for university presses, uh, you also write books for children. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work in this area.
2: Yeah, well, that was kind of unexpected. It was definitely not planned. But after *Grizzly*, um, I was working on an exhibit at the Air and Space Museum called *Pioneers of Flight*, which which worked, looked at the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and some of the iconic stories were there, such as Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart. But one of the planes that was also, is, is also part of that collection and that ex- ex- exhibition is called the Chicago. And it's a Douglas World Cruiser plane. And it's claim to fame was it was the first plane to fly around the world. And I had never heard that story before. But once I heard the story and realized how fascinating it was, um, I determined that that story needed to be told for kids because that is the type of book that I wanted to read as a boy. This great grand adventure story. So a little bit about it. It was 1924. There were four army air service planes that left Seattle traveling west in attempt to be the first around to fly around the world. And five other countries were also attempting that feat. And so it was in essence a race. And so, um, it was a time when it was three years before Lindbergh. And so it, it was. I think it got lost to history. that Not many people know the story because perhaps the Lindbergh tidal wave that came along, but also the men who did it are not household names necessarily. Um, but not all the planes made it. I'll let you read the book, but only I'll say that two only two made it all the way around. Four left, only two made it around. Everyone survived, which makes it a great kid's story. Um, but it has all the, the classic things that you would like to see in a kid's book, suspense and... Danger and um, teamwork and all those great things like that. But um, what what made it even more fun for me as a historian is we had one of the journals of, of one of the men who flew in the Chicago in our archives at the Air and Space Museum, and we had over 400 photographs from the trip in the collections of the archives. And so, with the plane and the the journal and the photos, it was a fun story to tell because I could I used the journal as my main. Uh, basis for telling the story
1: and this book tim has has received some accolades, right? Um yes, I know you're I know you're a humble guy, but tell us a little bit about uh, the way this book has been
2: received, yeah, so when you write a book, you never know how it's going to be received, and you hope it uh, obviously the publishers with this story took a risk because no one most people do not know this story. Um, but all the books are at that age are a lot of them about aviation are written about Mio Earhart and Lindbergh, so. Um, they took a risk with the story. And so recently it was uh, listed, it was listed as a finalist for the YALSA Excellence in Nonfiction Award, which is given by the American Library Association. So I got to go up to that award ceremony in Boston and um, received the love of a lot of librarians. And it was just wonderful to hear them say that there is such a need for nonfiction history books for that age group. So I wrote it I targeted ages ten to fourteen. So, if any of you out there know how to write for that age group, they they're looking for books, nonfiction books, history books for that age group that are based solidly on primary source materials.
1: And am I right to assume that you have another uh, sort of ten ages ten through fourteen that age period, another book of that nature in in the works?
2: Yeah, thanks. actually, I'm working on an exhibition called Milestones of Flight, which is the premier exhibition for the Air and Space Museum. Also, it's opening July 1st, and it's um, combined with the 40th anniversary of the museum, the museum's opening. And so this is a uh, an adapt- adaptation of the script for that gallery. So it's called Milestones of Flight, and it's coming out June 7th. Great. Now,
1: you told me a story off the air about your book, First Flight, and why... Uh, why it wasn't published in China. Tell us that story.
2: It's an amazing story. Everyone loves this story. So it's 1924, and so I was looking for a great map to illustrate the flight. And so I went to the Library of Congress, which has a wonderful map collection, and found this 1922 map, very colorful, perfect for kids, showed all the countries as they were then, and uh, selected that to go in the book. And then the book was had started... The printing process in china when i got an email from my editor saying uh we need to they want us to make some changes to the map um they're not they they won't print the book unless we make these changes so they were not comfortable with taiwan and china being different colors on the map and under taiwan in parentheses it said japan because in in that time period japan was part of the japanese colonial empire and then also Tibet was the same size type font as China, and they wanted to reduce Tibet's the size of the font. And of course, we said, it's a historic map. We're not about to change a historic map. And so the result was we had to go to Singapore to print it and add an extra cost for the consumer. And the other interesting thing is it was an American company that was printing, supposed to print the book in China. So interesting.
1: That is a really that is a really interesting story. Uh, our time's just about up, but I do want to uh, I do want you to talk a little bit uh, Tim about the History Relevance campaign. You are one of the founders of the History Relevance campaign, HRC. Uh, go look it up on uh, follow it on Twitter, go find that website. What is the website for the History Relevance campaign? It's just
2: historyrelevance.com.
1: historyrelevance.com. What is the History Relevance campaign? And what are you trying to accomplish with this effort?
2: So we're trying to start a conversation among history types of all sorts from academic, you know, across the whole spectrum. Um, we're trying to empower, empower them to, to be more ati- articulate about why history is relevant and to not just say it's relevant, but find ways to demonstrate to lots of different audiences why history is relevant? It's not a new conversation by any means, but those of us who started this group recognized that that there wasn't a unified message getting out, and there also wasn't the same amount of dedication to articulating that message. And sometimes there's not even great communication among the different types of historians. I, I would add. So one what an impetus one impetus for this was. Um, I have to say it was STEM because science, technology, engineering, and math is still a very hot commodity. It's it's a brand. If you think about it as a brand, and then perhaps the tipping point was when the art community started adding the A, got the A added, so STEAM. People were talking about STEAM, and of course the history types were saying, "Well, what about history? You know, where's the H?" And so we first started off thinking of this as possibly a branding campaign to improve the brand of history, but quickly decided that's not quite what we need to start with. We need to start with um, just um, having a conversation, getting people talking, and also getting people... We, We need to gather evidence. So one of the projects, there's a variety of projects that we have started, but one of the projects is impact study to find evaluations that museums, historic sites, and other places have done... Of projects they've done with community that can show why what they've done, why history is relevant to their communities. So one of the other big projects of the History Relevance Campaign is the value of history statement, which we produced after going to many different conferences and talking to many different history types um, and asking them, you know, if you were putting together a list of why history is relevant what would be on that list? And so we went to AHA, we went to NCPH, National Council for Public History. We went to Smithsonian Affiliations Conference. We went to National History Day and talked to teachers and history students. Um, we, we tried to cover the gamut and um, came up with seven values of history. And now we're asking people to um, take a step, endorse those values. And by endorsing them, you you say that you will start using them, and many places already have, but start using this language with the various audiences that you deal with on a regular basis, whether it's funders or local politicians or whoever. Um, we're certainly not asking people to just use them as they are, but just adapt them and just start using this common language.
1: If we want to get involved somehow with the history relevance group or campaign or, or Maybe some of our listeners are affiliated with some type of a history institution at the local level somewhere. Uh, how do you get involved?
2: Uh, go to the website, historyrelevance.com, and it'll list different projects we're working on. We're always looking for people to work on the task forces. Um, I should add that the people doing this, there is no budget. There is, It's not an official organization. It's a group of people passionate about history, professional historians who have day jobs very good day jobs but they realize that there is a great need in this society for people to think critically and to understand that history is not just dates and names and content it's really a skill set it's historical thinking that you've talked about i know on this podcast but we need to get the message out and help people understand that historical thinking is critical thinking it's about change over time it's about multiple multiple perspectives it's about historical context and those are the skills that historians have that can help them as a citizen in our in our country right in democracy
1: right so it's historyrelevance.com uh, i would also encourage you to look at the value statement there look at the uh, the the myriad of historical institutions including Mount Vernon where i'm where i'm doing this podcast yes. from who have uh, who have uh, endorsed uh, the History Relevance campaign? Uh, I should announce here that as of yesterday, I am now working with the Amer uh, with the History Relevance campaign as well. So you may be hearing yes. more about it on the blog and on the yes. podcast. But this this just sounds like a wonderful project uh, and everyone who listens to the podcast knows it's near and dear to my heart uh, to bring this kind of historical relevance and thinking to the uh, uh, to the broader uh, American population so uh, so that's yeah that's great news um, well Tim our time is up uh, this has been a very fruitful and very rich uh, conversation uh, I hope that all of our listeners will go out and buy a copy of Grizzly in the mail uh, buy a copy of first flight Tim do you have a website that we can promote?
2: Uh, yeah, timgrove.net is my author website.
1: So head over to timgrove.net and see all the uh, the, the the great things that that Tim is doing to promote history. Uh, Tim, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. It was my pleasure. Yeah, Tim has definitely drew a public historian's public historian. I mean, this guy has had experiences at every, almost every major American history Museum in the country, and in many ways, it's just inspiring to hear his stories. And I hope there's people out there who uh, may be even considering the field of public history who might find uh, Tim to be a uh, Tim's story, at least, to be uh, very interesting and informative to them.
0: Yeah, as I listened to that interview, I, I was struck by how me, how many times his stories reminded me of my own experience as a child encountering public history, and how that encounter was so formative for me and made me the historian I am today. The you know just thinking about going on childhood vacations to Colonial Williams, Williamsburg or taking field trips to the Smithsonian or exploring different historical sites around the country. And those explorations really left imprints on who I am today. Yeah, that's interesting you
1: say that, Drew. Because uh, usually, right around ten thirty, eleven o'clock every morning here at Mount Vernon, I I walk from the library over to the visitor center. They have a food court there, and I get my cup of coffee to keep me going. <laughs> and uh, and you know, especially with the weather getting warmer, the place is just packed with uh, with school kids, you know, on field trips. And just the other day, as I was waiting in line, uh, as they were buying their chicken fingers and uh, slices of pizza at the uh, at the food court, I was thinking, you know, how many of them are gonna remember this experience? I'm sure, I'm sure it's not gonna have a profound effect on every one of them, but, but there are gonna be some people here in this room, in this busy food court, who are gonna go look back and remember this experience and, 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 and be maybe even shaped or transformed by it. So uh, I definitely can relate to that, uh, your, refle- your own reflections on your sort of childhood
0: encounters uh, with the past. Well, Drew, I think that's a wrap. I think so. I think we are now officially halfway done with season one. So as you go out there and encounter the past in your everyday lives, may your way of
1: improvement always lead home.
0: This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks again to Ed Ark for all of his support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Tim Grove. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.